All right. So, Brian, let's start off with, uh, real quick, uh, talk to me about what, how you started playing basketball um, out in California and getting, going into Southern Cal. Can you talk to us a little about that? Well, I, I grew up in, in Seattle, a small town in Seattle. Okay. Uh, it was a town called Eunclaw, and basically what happened is I, I moved up there, I, I met a couple friends, and those guys played basketball, so I just started playing, and I... I really loved growing up, like, to compete. I competed in all the sports, and I just, that, during that time, my friends happened to play basketball. I didn't, I wasn't really that tall. We were all very equal players, and uh, it was just a matter of uh, me just uh, working hard, growing, and uh, and putting my, you know, like, more of a, like, the dedication to the, the work that goes into the game that helped me develop as a youngster. Can you talk to, talk to us about the practice ethic you, you developed uh, while you were in high school to have that transition from high school into college? So when I uh, when I started playing AAU or travel team or whatever they call it now hold on one second thank you uh, so when I started playing AAU travel team I went down there and I, I didn't play very well you know I sort of dominated athletically which is not really a huge secret or surprise or anything like that but hmm. it was just uh it was just the speed of the game was just something I've never seen before. It was stuff for me to get used to. So um, when I got back, that's sort of when I started to really like learn to train my body, really learn to work hard and, and work on my conditioning and my athletic ability. And then at that point, I really spent the time just like doing the quickness drills, the speed drills, the jumping drills. And I had to do all of that just to compete at that level. And then once you start working when you're young, your work capacity goes up. Like here's a good example. I still work out now, and the work, the workout that I was doing going into my senior year in high school is what I would consider like my my warm up now. So it's like you just keep evolving, getting uh, your work capacity keeps getting higher and higher. It's so different for anybody in the office or or probably your job. At one time, it was so difficult to write one page. Now you're not even warmed up until you start getting into the second page. So it's just like. Uh, can you talk about the pressures of being a college athlete when you were in Southern Cal? You know, the only pressure I ever felt in basketball was only to win, and, uh, and that's a good type of pressure. It's uh, it's really good to, to feel the joy of, of, of victory and also like agonizing during defeat, and because you learn so much from your character in both of those instances. Once you start really feeling good about yourself, then you lose a game, and you're like, man, I should have worked harder. And if you lose a few games, you, you put in the extra time, you put in the extra work to to work on your extra shots or to get, get in the weight room because you just don't want to feel that feeling once again. So uh, I never felt like, like there was pressure from the alumni or my coaches or anything like that. Like the pressure was like, for me to just make sure that we win games and get my teammates to do whatever it took to win games. I never really, like, never believed I was going to make it to the NBA, so I never thought, like, oh, man, I really got to play well to make it to the NBA. It was not a concern of mine whatsoever. Can you talk to me about the feeling on draft night when you got the call? Yeah, I mean, it was a good feeling, but I never felt like I, I made it. I was a second-round pick. And um, I knew I had to go in there and make the team. And, you know, like, my agent, who was Arntel and Bob Myers, 
they did a, a great job of never letting me feel like I, I really made it. They said, like, listen, you got drafted by them, but now you got to make the team. You got to play well in summer league. Then you got to, you know, after that, you got to, you got to do even more. And so I always felt like the need to continue to strive and get better um, during that time was it a dream come true? I don't think it, it was like that for me. It was more like a place where I was going to end up. But um, like the dream come true came like now, like eleven years later, looking back on my career, like wow, you know, I was I did a lot of great things. Right um, now, I can look back and say, man, I've, I've been on good teams. I met great people when I got opportunity to play. I played really well. My teams have won. That's what I look at, like, more of a sense of accomplishment now. And not so much, like, I've made it. I never really felt like during the time of my career that I really made it. You, know, you had a nice stint in New Jersey, and I, I was around through a lot of that. Um, can you talk to me about what you learned about with playing with guys like Jason and Kenyon and also your general experience uh, playing in New Jersey? Well, I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, playing for the fans there, you know, I know they sometimes get a bad rep for not coming out or, or whatever during that time, but, uh, you know, I have still have friends today that are season ticket holders uh, from New Jersey, and also some of the people from the organization I still keep in contact today, and it was like, uh, it was like my first exposure to, like, true professionals, you know, I was just coming out of college, so I didn't really know a lot of people that put the suit and tie on every day and see what they do and like they're intrigued by what they do so that was tremendous and then when you talk about like chasing kid and what he did for me personally as well as other NBA players I mean he really made me a better basketball player than, than like I mean, we could probably say that I really was just for the fact that he would always pass on time and, and um, he was there uh, unselfish and, and so with that it was uh, really easy to uh, to continue to develop with a guy like and just Kenya Martin was my first example of seeing a guy that was you know off the charts athletically and, and how good he is defensively and how smart he was it really blows me away today in NBA I mean like you have an athletic guy who cares about guarding people and he's a very 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 intelligent player when it comes to conceptually figuring out the game and analyzing what both people do. If you ask Kenny Martin, any player in the NBA, what they do, he'll tell you exactly what their tendencies are. So, you know, I learned at that point, like, listen, the game is not about just running up and down. There's a lot of strategy that goes into it. And studying is very important. And, and, and sort of with those guys being there, I sort of learned that from them. Playing with the Nets, um, I, I, me personally, watching you play through the years, I, I have two moments in New Jersey that really, really stand out. One was the, the game against the Detroit Pistons in the NBA playoffs. You hit some key, yeah. for the, the, you know, the uh, you know that overtime, uh-huh. that overtime classic. Can you talk about that game? What you remember about it? Just the atmosphere in Detroit, and you know what you felt on the court. Well, like uh, going into that, I, I really, uh, I, uh, Coach Larry Drew was the assistant coach, and he has, and he has sons that were great basketball players and he really took me under his wing and taught me a lot about individual workouts so I was working out with him every day and a lot of people forget like during the Knicks series I shot something like 80% from the field during mm-hmm. that series I remember that knocked down crucial knocked down crucial three-pointers and we kind of just like blew through them and during the time everyone remembers the, uh, the, the, the the shots in overtime but I think going into that I played just in the first half for a few minutes I had six points 
so I was like I think at that point I was really playing good basketball and my shot was really feeling good and so uh, we get to the overtime and you know like Kenny Martin fouls out Ronnie Rogers fouls out and there was no one left I think Aaron Williams fouled out so I was the only guy left and and uh, Coach Frank sort of looks down at the bench and I know I'm going in the game and I, and I was pretty confident at the time because I was shooting the ball so well and he drops the four letter word you know like starts with an F and ends with a K as he looks at me <laughs> and I was like that's what you're going to say to me as I've got to go in the game in overtime and he's like get in there so I go in the game and I was sort of like man I can't believe he said that like I'm going to him wrong so I was just like and I you know and there's obviously more things to be worried about but like you know it's the kind of things that motivate me like people that don't think I can do things in life I really get motivated by that and um I mean, I don't even know if he did it on purpose, but I, I was really, at least for my first two shots, I was really angry about him saying that. You should be like, come on, Sam, I'll go there and do it. But no, he, he, uh, he went the other route, and I was like, just, I was like, all right, I got this is my opportunity. Like, I love these, I love this uh, chance. I'll never get chances like this again. And, you know, like, I really do live for the moment. Like, I'm not scared. I, I, I love to, to play in those types of situations. I've been in other fourth quarters and, and got opportunities to make key shots. I made them. I mean, like, percentage-wise for clutch shooting, man, I mean, it's got to be up there. Because for a guy who doesn't have that many opportunities, I've not counted some pretty clutch shots in my career. <laughs> yeah, you have. That's I mean, a- I don't, it's not like, you know, like my man Kobe, Kobe gets, uh, you know, two, two for ten last year in, in clutch opportunities. Like, on my career, I've only had, like, five. I've made, like, four of them. So my percentage is pretty high. Yeah, and, and make- anyway, going on from that, like it was just such a uh, you know, obviously huge game, pivotal game, game five, and uh, you know, like my crowning moment, which most people remember before, was also the reason why we sort of lost the series. Jason Kidd played sixty minutes that night, and his knee was sort of ailing at the time, yeah. and he never really recovered from that as far as like, getting his legs underneath him. And I think it's part of the reason why we end up losing the series. And I, and I also remember, you know, that and for me, being around the team at that point, too, um, you felt that at the end of that season there was going to be change because it was the, the yeah. throning of the Eastern Conference champions and, you know, the situation with Kenyon being traded. With Kenyon being traded and Vince Carter coming in uh, that December, your role expanded and you became... Yeah, I- I got a lot of opportunity that year, you know, and I, I made the most of it. And I really, uh, like, I really worked hard that off season. You know, like when you get a taste of success, like I did in that series, you know, I was, just, I was super motivated. Uh, you know, I met a kid now who uh, he was coaching at St. Anthony's and shirt with, with Bob Hurley. And um, I mean, I met him. He was a great kid. He's actually one of the coaches of the Warriors. His name is Darren Irvin, and he. Uh, he moved in with me so we can work out like three times a day. My wife hated him, but it was like <laughs> I told her, I kept telling her, baby, this is what I need to do. And, you know, with that opportunity, I knew Kenny wasn't going to come back and everything like that. So, hold on one second. 125? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh, so, then I, I worked really hard on my body and my conditioning, and I got myself ready. And I had, I think I had it by probably my best year of my career that year. Um, when uh, I had that opportunity, and I said, Jesus, it makes it a lot easier as well. You know, it was funny, too, because right after that season, you were at a crossroads. Before we touch about anything that happened with your transition from the Nets to the Celtics, you really became a fan favorite in New Jersey. I know the nickname Veal came from Coach Michael uh-huh. Horn. Um, can you yeah. talk about the effect that 
you know, you the, the fans in New Jersey had on you and you had on them. Well, I mean, for sure, you know, I kind of, like, grew up with them, you know, like, from a, you know, second-round pick, sort of making his way, you know, a guy goes in at the end of the game to a guy who eventually became, like, sort of started when guys were out and became a, a, a pivotal role player, played big games. And, um, you know, it was it was hard to leave them, but then, you know, like, you know, you only get one opportunity in this business, and, you know, I, I sort of took advantage of that opportunity, you know, playing with those guys, and, I mean, I'm sure the Nets feel like, geez, we can put anybody around Jason Kidd and they'll put up pretty good numbers, and, uh, and they're probably right, you know, there's a lot of guys that fill my role at, at, at for a cheaper price at the time, so, um, I, I definitely... I definitely enjoyed the fans of New Jersey when I was there. And, you know, the relationships, like I said, the relationships I built, those are things that you have to sort of move on from. And uh, it was just, uh, it was good. I mean, for me, one of those things that it really worked out, you know, coming to Boston and, uh, you know, being on the with Garnett and the big three. And, you know, it was tough for the first two years and we didn't have, you know, those guys. But, I mean, now it's Boston is like a, like what I would consider like I'm a, I, I am a Celtic you know it's like uh, things that I've kind of grown up here and I'm working for them now doing uh, commentary so it's uh, I've really embraced the role here as well what was it like making the transition from the Nets to Boston you know Boston is a very rich franchise and you you got to play with you know Paul Pierce and eventually Garnett and Ray Allen talk about the culture change between New Jersey and Boston and the experience uh, of playing before Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett to you know to winning a championship. Yeah, so that that was uh, you know those two years in transition were very difficult. Uh, you know we were losing games and I and the hardest thing was playing against guys, playing with guys that uh, like could retain like defensive rotations. Because you know like the teams that I've been on, so right away two finals, then we went to play Detroit, and then. Uh, then I move over to Boston, and the, the, it was tough for young guys to understand rotations, and, and that gets, that's frustrating. But there's the guys like Kyle Jefferson, very talented player. Um, you know, like guys like Tony Allen, and, and he's good on the ball defender. I mean, it's, a lot of good, like Delonte West, a lot of good players that that came through during that time. But we also play guys like Gerald Green, and, and at the time, it's just like you know, like. Basketball to them, it was just an extension of AAU. It wasn't the business and uh, like the accountability that I look at it like. So then, um, so then when Garnett got here, obviously it completely changed everything because his his attention to detail, his focus is something that I've never seen before. Even Jason had a life uh, like a, a more of a this is not the right word like a, a more of an upbeat personality. I'm not saying he's like a joker or anything like that. He gets locked in as well. But Garnett is like an amazing player before the game and how much he locks in. And, uh, by the, uh, great question with the culture by asking that. You have Jason Kidd who changed the culture of the net. And now I'm seeing Garnett like single-handedly change the culture of the Celtics. And it was, uh, it was really, it was really fun to see. And like you learn, you learn to appreciate what the superstar can do and what a true superstar is about in this league and why Garnett is worth $20 million a year or $25 million a year because he makes everyone around him better just by his by his presence. So uh, that was, and, and 
moving on to 08, winning the championship, and then just playing good for the next three years. It, it was uh, it was something that I, I'm really fortunate to get opportunity to play with a guy like that. And for, forever in my career, playing with those two guys will be uh, probably the two teammates that I think impacted the organization more than anybody. Out of the three coaches you had up until that point where you had Byron Scott, Lawrence Frank, Doc Rivers, what little things were you were you able to take out of working under those three? Well, Byron was, uh, you know, I like Byron, Byron's uh, uh, simplistic approach to, to, uh, to offense, you know, like really uh, learned about like the ball goes into your best decision maker's hands and everyone sort of play off of him. That's pretty good. You get the ball to Jason Kidd and everyone play off of him and, and you can have some success. Then, you know, with Lawrence, you know, he was so locked in defensively. Um, he learned a lot about how, to, how different coverages affect guys and how studying the game can really, uh, can really determine the outcome, whether it's a guy that's to the left from the top, so you force right, or, or, you know, a big can't pick and pop, so you, you make it a certain coverage with a guy who can't, you know, pick and pop. So, and then moving on to Doc, Doc, uh, by far of all the coaches I've ever played with, uh, the ability to manage guys, like, let's, let's just say egos, the ability to manage egos in the NBA is a very difficult task, especially when you have a team that's loaded and has high expectations. Doc Rivers does the best job of getting players to do what he wants them to do and making him, making the players think that it's their idea. And, uh, I would, I, I marveled at that and, and his ability to get players to buy in and commit and his give and take approach to, all right, let's just do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. And then when big things come and I need to ask them to do something for me, they're going to do it for me. And so you learn how to manage all that. And plus, that's not even considering the fact that I think Doc Rivers is a basketball uh, offensive genius. I mean, when it comes to the plays that he can design, and that what he sees on the floor it is really remarkable just to sit in on a huddle and see what he draws up and how he um, explains timing just from the board. A lot of guys can't do it. That timing and spacing just by writing something down is very difficult to do, and uh, he does a really good job of that. You know, your experience with the Celtics, uh, also, you know, when Ray and Kevin got there, with the exception of Paul, you had the most playoff experience too. You'd been to two, been to two finals. You'd been through the ringer. You know, I don't want to say the ringer, the playoff ringer in New Jersey. Were you able to give those guys any advice about going as deep as you guys did that first year? No, not really. Uh, you know who actually did that? And uh, was James Posey. You know, he just came off of winning a championship two years before, and he was on those guys constantly, like like about nothing here too good or anything like that. Like, my experience in, in giving him a, a, you know, what I've been through is a lot different than what Garnett's going through. Garnett's going, like, has the weight of Boston on his shoulders. You know, I was just a role player at the time. And uh, I think, for me, it's more like I've always helped young guys out. And, like, this is a good opportunity for you. Stay focused on what you want to do. Just you provide an unbelievable life for yourself and your family just by staying focused and working hard. But, you know, like, I'm not giving Garnett what advice and what it's like to be in the finals twice. I mean, I've really played in the finals. I know. Well, you know, it's, it's also what you've seen and what, you know, what the experience that you had at that time, too. Um, That's a good point. 
<laughs> and also, can you define what your role was with the Chicago Bulls? Because that was a fairly you know young team uh, when you when you joined over there, and being with someone like Derrick Rose and you know Carlos Boozer, can you define what the experience was like being you know a veteran with that squad? So like Thibodeau, uh, Thibodeau brought me over when he when he was there, and um, you know he didn't bring me over just to to do what I ended up doing. He, he like he really thought he needed a range shooting four and it's a guy who knew the defense and a guy who he can trust, and that's important at the end of your bench. You don't want to have guys you're fighting with at the end of your bench. So um, my role there was to make sure like to, like my bigs knew the rotations at all times because. With Tibbs, things are always going to be changing. Rotations are going to be changing in the middle of the game. You're going to go from a show to an ice to a, to a sack, and, and guys got to know what, what those rotations are. So I'll listen in on the huddles. What, what do we got? Okay, this is what we uh, this is what we're doing. I'll talk to the guys on the bench. If they have questions, they can ask me because they don't want to go ask the head coach. Hey, are we in this? Or are we in that? So they ask me, and I ask the head coach. Um, also in practice, and just like leading by example, you know, like you know, uh, setting the tone in practice early with a lot of energy and making sure that guys are getting in the weight room and doing their extra work. If Omir Zeke wasn't playing, he needs to he needs to run. And it's hard to tell that one of your players no when they're asking you. It's like it's easy to tell a coach, "Hey, man, I don't want to do that today." But if I'm over here, like, all right, let's go, let's bump, let's play one on one, let's go and uh, let's run our one hundred. You know, you didn't play a lot last night. Or, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to be, they're going to do that. So it's just that. It wasn't like some uh, crazy opportunity to coach and to be in these guys here. The very, it, 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 was a, it was a way for me to do my job, do my role, and also help guys along. But no different than uh, a veteran guy, like helping any young guy out, whether he played or didn't play. So that was sort of uh, what my role evolved into. Uh, was there any truth to the rumor that you uh, turned down an assistant coach position with Chicago? Yeah. <laughs> and and you also before the lockout season last year you went you went overseas to play for a little bit. Can you talk about the difference between playing overseas and in the NBA? Yeah. So the uh, the NBA is, is is a game in which you put your best player in the best opportunity with the ball in his hands, hoping that he will make the best decision. Sometimes that decision is to shoot. Sometimes it is decision is to kick it right back to a guy, um, and you play off of that. So a role player like myself can really take advantage of playing off of a guy like Jason Kidd, off Derrick Rose, off of uh, Rajon Rondo. Like those, those are ways at which I could excel. In Europe, it's more like everyone is in all the positions, and anybody can score off of anything. I could get, receive a cross screen, or I can also receive a pin down. It's my choice. If I go up, the next guy has to read, and he has to snap back. When I come up, if I don't have a shot, I can swing it to probably not a, like a, a center, but like any of the two, uh, one, two, or three to come off a pick and roll. At that point, the ball is just moving, and that's how Europe is played. They don't, they're not as athletic um, at the rim. So they're not as athletic getting to the rim, and they're not as athletic defending the rim. But... Uh, but the size of the EuroLeague teams, are, they're all pretty big. And the point guards are by far, by far, the most important position there. Because like, you get an American point guard over there that knows what he's doing. And if your guy can't sniff the floor in the NBA, he can make a great living over there being one of the best players in Europe. It's just uh, ball control, ability to run pick and roll. It's, it's so important out there. 
And then you, obviously you came back after after the lockout ended and you, you played last year with Chicago. Can you talk to me about the transition and the decision to want to go into broadcasting? Well, this year was, uh, I really, so the two options were to, to coach or to broadcast. Like, there was no opportunities for me to play. I really wanted to try out and then and, and play. And then, you know, like, and I feel, I, and this is how I feel, I feel it's unfortunate because, you know, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to play in Chicago. Whether just uh, whether it's deserving or not, which I actually agree with Thibodeau, there are guys that were better than me before. So I played the last couple minutes of the game. But my point is, from a guy who didn't get that much opportunity, but has been to four finals and and been to a lot of different, um, has a lot of success. I mean, last two years we had the best record in the NBA. So four finals, best record in the NBA, like five times. Like I've been on a lot of good teams. To not give that guy an opportunity and then give some guy who's been on losing teams his whole life that averaged four points a game or five points a game an opportunity to come to camp. I just think, I mean, no disrespect to general managers, I just think that's stupid. But, um, you know, I have to I have to live with the realities of what these decisions are. If no one wants me in camp because they don't think I can make their team, then I have to move on with my life. You know, I, I couldn't have went back to Europe and played, but with my family situation, it's just not the best situation. And... Comcast has been unbelievable towards me as far as uh, helping me transition to this. I mean, you got guys like Mike Gorman and uh, my producer, Paul Lucy, that are helping me every second along the way to help me become a better broadcaster. These are opportunities that you just don't get every single day. So, you know, I had to look at my life as a whole and say, well, this would seem, this seems like to me the best opportunity for me moving on. I can stay a part of the game. I don't have to, uh, work for, you know, like uh, 16, 17 hours a day like a coach. I can try this out. I can understand if I want to keep doing it. That's the reason why I made that transition. So, uh, so far, it's been great. I've, I've loved working with Comcast. And I've, the, the biggest thing, like which I mentioned earlier, is just the fact that uh, there's I got a lot of people really helping me out along the way. And I don't feel like I'm stepping on anybody's toes. It's, just great. it's been a great learning experience for me. And it also helps that you're, you know, a fan favorite still in Boston too, because you know people love you and they and they love tuning into, you know, to hear you talk. And and I have to ask you, like we we brought up the Veal nickname before, can you explain how the White Mamba nickname came about? So uh, the White Mamba was uh, partially Stacey King, and let me see how it went down. Like so, Kobe just came out with the Black Mamba commercials, and they were hilarious. I mean. I was serious. They had Bruce Willis in them. They were great. And I wear Kobe's shoes. I mean, I, they're as far as like any shoe I've ever worn. I have, you know, 50 pairs at home right now that I just am waiting to wear out before, you know, the Nike doesn't give me shoes anymore. Um, but they're not black. I made them all white. They have snake skin on them. So these shoes, I just deemed them the white mambas, right? So uh, one day I'm walking on a plane, like, uh, Yo, Stace, I got these, uh, I got these new shoes, man, they're called the White Mambas. <laughs> I made them myself, you know, and from, and then I went along with that, like, cause I'm the White Mamba, I'm the world's most dormant snake. You know, they call me the deadliest snake, I'm the world's most dormant snake. <laughs> and I just said it one time, like, I literally said it one time in passing. And he took it and made it, in, I mean, there's shirts and, I mean, he took it to a level which I never could have even imagined this thing becomes. 
And uh, but that's the power of a, of a great personality and great color commentator like Stacey Keene. You can take something, <laughs> an idea, and turn it into just a phenomenon. Yeah, that's that's hysterical. <laughs> um, it, is, it really, it really is hysterical. Um, yeah, you're. And it's a funny, what can you tell us about um, the business aspect of basketball? Uh, where they, you know, because you tr- some of these guys travel from team to team and play from team to team. Is it hard to keep friendships in the NBA? Uh, no, no, because your bonds and your relationships it doesn't take very long to build those. Okay. You know, uh, eventually with time though those pass, and it's okay. You know, it's like it's no different than any other world, but. Uh, you know, like, I'm friends with guys that, like, I'm still friends with Eddie Howe, you know, like, I, you know, like, that's my guy, you know, we won a championship together, and then he, and I moved on, and he moved on, and he got traded, so, it's, uh, it's, you, you really build these bonds, and you, and you go, and you get to know each other, and it's, uh, and, and it's no big deal that they go to different teams, now, do you want to beat them when you play? Yeah, for sure you want to beat them, but, uh, but, like, I, I find, like, I'm, you know, Joe Kim Noah, Omir Azik, Josh Gibson, you guys are my guys. Thibodeau is my guy. Doc's my guy. I mean, like, this guy that went to Chicago the last few years doesn't mean that everyone in Boston hates me. They, they understand the business of basketball. And when I come back, everyone was like, hey, man, how you doing? This is great. It's a good opportunity for you. Well, now, this is the part where you get to yell at me. So this is going to be the fun part right. for me. All right. On my show, I, besides doing writing, I host a, a radio show every Sunday. And we did we did our NBA preview, and I broke down the Eastern Conference, and uh, Peter Vesey called me an idiot. Um, Stephen A. Smith called me an idiot because I put the Boston Celtics over the Miami Heat in making the, the Celtics the number one team in the conference because I felt that the Boston Celtics made enough offseason moves to add depth in every position, whereas the Miami Heat didn't fill their point guard hole. They did not improve the depth on their front line. So, your opinion, if you had to put the top four teams in the Eastern Conference, I put as long as everybody was healthy, I put number one, I put the Celtics, the Heat number two. Uh, my, it obviously is going to change now that the Pacers have lost Danny Granger, but I put them at three. And I put Philly at four when at, when they're fully healthy with Andrew Bynum, assuming everything clicks. Um. Uh, are you saying that you, you think the Boston are going to make it to the finals or you think they're going to have the best record in the NBA? I think they're going to have the best record in the East. The best record in the East. Because I, th- I just feel that they yeah. have enough weapons that can, that they can lead the conference. I think there they're could be the class of the conference and challenge the Heat for the, uh, the East crown. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think you're far off, but I'm not on your, I'm not on your bandwagon. I, the way I feel is Basketball is just about one thing, really. Like, offensively, and there's different ways to do this. You're trying to compromise the defense. And what I mean by compromise the defense, that means put two guys on one guy. So, one way or another, you've got to put two guys on LeBron, whether it's in a pick and roll or isolation or in the post. And then from there, do they have the tools that, that go along with that? Do the Miami Heat have the tools if they put two guys on LeBron? to take advantage of that. So when I look at their team, I say, yes, they definitely have the tools now with a lot of range shooting, and they have LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. The Celtics have Rajon Rondo, but their shooters aren't as good as Miami Heat shooters. So 
they don't have a true guy, a true post-up threat. What they have is a pick-and-roll player and a pick-and-pop player. Now, if the Celtics would have signed a guy who was an aggressive roller, so let's say you add, like, and who, as I may, I think he's making a great impact this year, but I'm a big fan of him. You add Tyson Chandler to the Celtics, then I would agree with you that not have frontline size and you have no aggressive guys going to the rim in the pick and roll to combat Harnett's pick and pop ability, I find it very difficult for them to be able to beat Miami. They're not going to be able to compromise defense enough in the regular season to make the game easy. Now, I'm not saying that they can't beat them in the playoffs because. I really believe in Doc Rivers as a coach. And I, if you look at what he did last year with a team that was an F to be even out there on the floor with them, like some of their role players needed to be playing, and they were he took Miami to seven games. I think that this team this year has a better opportunity to beat Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals, but I wouldn't go that far. Now, as far as your Philly pick, I find Swiss cheese holes all over that team right now. And I, I, I really like Doug a lot. I think he's a tremendous coach. But um, it's hard when your superstar doesn't care about basketball. It just is. Yeah, it seems like Bynum seems to be uh, drifting away uh, again. When, like I said, when healthy and when everybody's there, motivated to play, that team could, is probably going to be one of the most young, exciting teams to watch. But right now, it looks like they're far away from that. Um, and, and real quick, let's touch on you know your former your former squad, uh, the, you know the, now the Brooklyn Nets. Did you yeah. like Did you like the moves that uh, Billy King and Avery Johnson were able to put together during the offseason? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that basketball is played like a certain way. So, um, one, you have, like, it's, don't be confused by all the smoke and mirrors. It all comes down to 70 or 80 pick and rolls a, day, a game. If, if you have a guy who can play pick and roll, then you also have two bigs that can play pick and roll. Then you're in a pretty good position. So, uh, they have Darren Williams, obviously, an elite pick and roll player. And then they sort of have to figure out their four and five position as far as one guy rolling to the basket aggressively to compromise the defense. And then around that, you got to have a shooting big. So, I don't know if they did enough at the four and five position to dominate the paint to play with a guy like Darren Williams. But as far as the, the moves they made, the by getting Joe Johnson, resigning Gerald Wallace. Gerald Wallace, to me, is a, a, would be a good player on a championship team. So if they have the, if the, if the four and the five can do it for them, then they'll they'll have a, a good opportunity to um, to win. And and last question is for you uh, away from the court. Um, I know you were involved with some outside projects. Would you have anything going on right now as far as? Uh, because I remember you, at one point you were doing a, a sports school back when you were here in Jersey. Uh, yeah, no, so I, right now, like, um, I, I, I do camps. And, um, but my, my major thing now is just, like really helping people out that have organized this thing. Like, for instance, if someone puts together a basketball camp and they put their whole uh, winter into planning this thing, and they really put their blood, sweat, and tears in there into this thing, and they, and, they, and they really worked their tail off to get it done. For me, this to show up for one hour makes a huge difference for them. So, like, that's sort of my, my thing lately. It's just been like, uh, I look at people and I say, hey, you know, contact me about summer, and if I can get it into my schedule, 
I'm not going to fly from Seattle all the way to Boston to come to a camp for one hour. But if I'm in Boston and I can just rearrange something and, and be at and be somewhere for somebody, I'll do that because I know it makes a big difference to them. And uh, and once again, like just like getting an opportunity to talk to kids about what this game means to me, what I felt like it should mean to them, and how working hard in basketball will translate to working hard in life. Those are the type, sort of the messages that I try to pass on to, to young kids. So uh, that has been kind of my thing lately. I don't. I'm not doing a camp. I'm not doing anything on my end. But when people need help, I, I love to chip in because uh, it means a lot to these to these people that, that put so much into into developing a camp. And are you? And you were involved with the athletes for hope. I still am. You know, and they whenever whenever they need me and I can make it happen with my schedule, I try to. I try to go and do something with them. And uh, can you just really quickly, I have two more questions I know you got to get rolling too. Um, can you talk about the Athletes for Hope and how important it is for all the athletes to be involved uh, off the court? Well, I just think it's important for uh, any athlete to have a message and, and, to, and to portray that message because the reality of it is people listen to them and, uh, and if, they can, if they can help out, in any way, like what, with, with the time I worked with Athletes for Hope, like uh, we planted a garden in the inner city of Boston. Like that changes people's lives. It, like it really makes a big difference. So um, that's what Athletes, Athletes for Hope is about. And there's, like I said, it doesn't take a ton of time to really help you know someone's cause out. And uh, last question, you know, when you're not involved with basketball, what do you like to do with, like, for fun and on your off time, like hobbies, t- TV shows? What's 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 your uh, what do you like to do for fun? Well, I have uh, I have a wife and two kids, and they they take uh, unbelievable amounts of time. And, you know, <laughs> like their development to me is important as well. So I work with my girls on on just whether it's coloring to soccer to. They're lifting weights, which they don't lift a lot of weights, but when I'm in there training, they, they want to do the same thing. And uh, and then um, I like to train. I really like to lift. And um, I met the, the in Chicago. They have, I believe, probably the greatest strength and conditioning coach. Oh, Rich was pretty good, too. But I really just, uh, like, really working on my body and uh, improving myself. And it's just, it goes way more than just becoming a basketball, better basketball player. It goes through, like, the lifestyle you choose and and the stuff that you decide to eat. And uh, so I take a lot of interest in that. And then um, also, um, I like to ride my bike. I'm a big mountain biker and a big road biker. I do that mostly in the summertime, but I'm starting to pick up more hobbies now that uh, I'm uh, retired from basketball. Mm-hmm. And just kind of exploring different things and seeing what's, uh, what's out there. Cool. All right, Randy. Hey, bro.